Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am your host, Stephen Buja, and joining me once again, like she do, Miss Amy Thomason. Amy, how are you doing on this March 14th Pi Day of 2018? Well, first of all, RIP to the great Stephen Hawking. Yes. And... The great costume designer and fashion designer, Hubert de Givenchy, who created all of Audrey Hepburn's iconic looks, even the ones that Edith Head took all the credit for. Ooh. Okay. Yes. yes. Uh, uh, R.I.P. to both of them. Uh, I did not know that about uh, de Givenchy. Yeah, two days ago. And yes. then I have recently come in from a 17-minute moment of silence for the tragedy and Florida victims. Yes. How how was that? I I had no, I no was nowhere near any any memorial. What what was the experience we, like? We were told ahead of time that our students might do something, and so we our principals just said, "Look, they have a right to do it. We are in no way supposed to push them to go or to push them not to do it." So my class left and went right outside, and it was really moving. And I told them. They were like, oh, I don't really know what's going on. I said, look, here's the deal. One, you do not have to participate. Two, if you would like to participate, you can. However, if you are going to go, it is a moment of silence. It is not we're going outside to text our friends and giggle and get out of class. Like, if you're going to do it, do it for the right reasons, which is a moment of silence and respect for the tragedy. Yes. And, they and did? several of them, they did. And several of them on the way in, um, on the way out, actually one girl like got in a little circle and she led a prayer, which I'm, again, I don't push for it. I'm not against prayer, but the fact that they did it and she really, and they prayed for the victims and for basically peace and bring comfort to them. It was really moving. I got a little choked up and emotional because yes. uh, it really was like, they get it. They've got good hearts, and they're in it for the right reasons. It wasn't just, oh, let's get out of class and stand and text message our friends. Right. That's that's comforting to hear. Uh, it's uh, I, I hope they retain that when they are eighteen and can vote, and act yes. and, and, ma- and make and make the legit and make the changes that this country so de- desperately needs. But uh, we are here today to discuss. Uh, what happens when the bad guys win outright? Uh, the film this week is, uh, is part of a new category called Forin, Your Reconsideration, because we're talking about notable foreign language films that were nominated for the Best Foreign Language uh, Award at the Oscars, but did not win, and I figured what with The Shape of Water recently winning Best Picture for Guillermo del Toro, that we should look back at his 2006 Best Foreign Language nominee, Pan's Labyrinth, for a little taste of GDT. Get our get our get our palettes <laughs> uh, palettes ready to go for a later discussion on uh, this year's Best Picture winner. Yeah. What is your association and memory with Pan's Labyrinth? I definitely didn't see it in the theater. I remember hearing when it came out that it just like gutted people mm-hmm. when it when they saw it and that it was just this beautiful fantasy. And I watched it and I really loved it. It's very haunting and beautiful. It it's it really stays with you long after it's over and definitely warrants discussion. Definitely, and we are uh, certainly here to uh, to do that. Uh, I, this was 2006, so I'm right out of college at this point, living in New York City. Uh, and uh, I know I was uh, I was a Guillermo del Toro fanboy, you know, because of Hellboy, Devil's Backbone, a lot of his uh, you know Chronos, uh, a lot of his Spanish language stuff, which deals with uh, some similar similar themes. This is. In fact, a sort of spiritual successor to *The Devil's Backbone*, uh, which is a frighteningly good movie. If you have not, if, if people out there, if you, if you have not seen that film, you should you should go check it out if you want to know more about Guillermo del Toro. And it's been uh, it's been a very long time since I saw it, but I remember seeing it then, loving it, being very mad when it did not win the best foreign language 
award, and we'll discuss that later on in the next section. And, uh, but I had not revisited it in a long time. Since then, my uh, I've been since then I get more excited about Guillermo del Toro than I do about Guillermo del Toro's films. Even even Shape of Water, I was like, eh, yeah, sure, okay, whatever. And it's and it's great. It's a great movie. And I look forward to discussing it at a, at a later date. But uh, there's something so infectious about del Toro and his personality because he feels like uh, you know like okay maybe I'm I'm not Hispanic. I'm not I'm like and rail thin and whatnot, but he he's he Del Toro is first and foremost he's a person who loves 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 films and I can relate to that and you know he talks about the old B movies with such uh, passion and like this like boyish glee that you you just have to love it and he's and he makes you know stunning movies that uh, I wrote that are just right in my wheelhouse they're dark fantasies or ghost stories or science fiction. Like you're his target audience. Yeah, like like Blade Two is an amazing movie, and I don't care what you say, I will <laughs> fight you on that. I love that. I don't care if the I don't care if Blade doesn't actually work that way. I just it's just it's just really it's just really great. He's a master. He's a master of uh, creature effects. Um, he's uh he's he's like he's a quintessential fanboy director. So to see him succeed is is great. And Pan's Labyrinth, up until Shape of Water, was I think his biggest triumph. He had a lot of hit, uh, hits or misses. He had a lot of he had lots of stalled projects, uh, but this is undeniably one of his great uh, his great works, and will, is the one that I think people remember him most by because mm-hmm. it's uh, the rare foreign language film to cross over into the mainstream of uh, English speaking America. Here, uh, very few have done that. I think uh, Crouching Tiger has done that, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Life is Beautiful, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Maybe a more to some extent, but you know, there it's few and far between when you get somebody like, We need to go see this movie that has subtitles on it, yeah, uh, to, to have it like become big and you know, people talk about it. I remember Colbert was like rooting for it, uh, back on, on his original show. So it's it's really it's a, it's a wonderful experience. A Del Toro movie. You get excited yes. about it. You get uh, you get you get worked up because you're like, this is a guy who gets me, and I love it. And I uh, I'm look, looking forward to discussing revisiting it now. It's been 12 years. Everyone has changed. I have changed. You have changed. Yes, uh, yes, be, I have. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be curious to hear what our what our thoughts are now because we are a bit uh, we're a bit further further away from the main character and a bit uh, closer. To the uh, supporting characters, as it were, and, and uh, that can actually affect one's viewing a lot in terms of these, uh, yes. these of these sort of fantasy films. So we are going to take a short break and come back and discuss the uh, several Academy Awards that Pan's Labyrinth did win, the one it did not win, and uh, a few other fun facts. So yes, we'll be right back. Oscar goes to Guillermo Navarro for This is the first Academy Award and nomination for Guillermo Navarro, a cinematographer on over 25 films, including Spy Kids and Night at the Museum. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Academy. This is a great honor. I want to congratulate my fellow nominees. It's a great honor to be among you. This award is a recognition for the collective effort to support the vision of the genius of Guillermo del Toro. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is the result of uh, these narratives that add up to and find the, the look of the movie in, in the narrative to continue in, into this incredible story that unfolds. The creative freedom that was needed to tell a story and to preserve the integrity of the story and of the point of view is what was more important for us in this movie. To my children, to my wife, 
for giving me wings. Thank you very much. Pan's Labyrinth won three Academy Awards at the 79th Annual Academy Awards in 2006. What were what did Pan's Labyrinth win? Because for a foreign for a foreign film to win uh, a, anything. really anything outside of foreign film is impressive. Few things do it. Life is Beautiful did it. Crouching Tiger did it. Do you see a pattern here? What did what did Pan's Labyrinth pick up? Best art direction, mm -hmm. obviously. I feel like all of these are so obvious. Uh, best cinematography and best makeup. Obviously, yes. Um, Obviously. Del Toro really, he prefers uh, practical effects. I think that's what a lot of people love him because, you know, we have so many CGI explosion fests, but he, when he gets down to it, he like, he loves the tactile, the real sensation uh, for, uh, for costuming and for, uh, for, for makeup. Uh, he uses, which, works. Uh, which, which totally works. He uses, uh, Doug Jones, who plays, I think all of his creatures in all of his movies, more or less, certainly the non, the, the, the non-talking ones. He plays, uh, the fawn in this movie and he plays, uh, he plays, he plays the creature in the shape of water as well. This, this very tall, really? willowy, willowy guy who just like really knows how to emote while underneath like tons of prostheses he's uh, he, he's fantastic so if, if, if you ever see like if there's ever a really tall character who's under a lot of makeup chances are it's doug jones did it, he also play the pale man he did play the pale man yes talk about the stuff nightmares are made of oh yes absolutely <laughs> Uh, so those wow. are th those are three at one. Definitely, uh, I don't think really anyone can complain about that cinematography that year. Okay, two thousand six was the year of the Three Amigos. You had uh, Del Toro, you had Alfonso Cuarón, and you had uh, Inaritu, all up for nominations in some category. In some category or other, Inaritu was nominated for best director. As well, uh, Coron was for adapted screenplay for the brilliant movie Children of Men, which I would die to talk about on this film. And of course, uh, Del Toro was up for uh, was up for a bunch of things. So this was like sort of like the year of the Mexican filmmaker, uh, sort of sort of coming forth. This was this was their debut, and they have since won uh, numerous Best Director awards in the past couple of years, as well as picked up a Best Picture win or two uh, in that time as well. So, uh, you know, cinematography was, you know, Pan's Labyrinth, it's The Prestige, The Black Dahlia, The Illusionist, which is a terrible movie, and uh, Children of Men. And if you don't remember Children of Men, Children of Men has some of the greatest single fakes in the history of cinema, just all sorts of action and many, many, many moving parts happening that are, like, so brilliant, you go, like, I don't actually understand how you managed to do this. Uh, so, it, you know, Pan's Labyrinth won, and that's great, but... You can make a case that uh, Children of Men should have won, or even The Prestige, because I think Prestige is one of the best movies. <laughs> a very, very dear friend of mine, since he watched Network for me, made me watch The Prestige, so I watched it. Oh. And I did. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Christopher Nolan movie. That I'm like, oh, Prestige is on? Uh, man, I've lost it. I'm losing an hour, or however long it is. It's just, it's so good, even when you, even when you know what's happening. But, and the great Hugh Jackman. Yes. Because who doesn't love Hugh Jackman? It's Hugh, we it's, love well, Hugh it's, Jackman. It's, it's Wolverine versus Batman. Like, come on. With David Bowie thrown in. Yes. I could talk yes. about the prestige all day. But uh, Pan's Labyrinth was nominated for three additional awards. Uh, it was Best Original Score, Best Original Screenplay. Del Toro wrote this from, uh, I would, can only assume, Fever Dreams he has had. Very, very imaginative man. Yes. And, of course, Best Foreign Language Film. It lost to the uh, German film *The Lives of Others*, and we have discussed this movie in a previous episode. And I will I will repeat the story that I was very mad at *The Lives of Others* because it beat *Pan's Labyrinth*. I had seen *Pan's Labyrinth* at the time. I had not seen *The Lives of Others*. Like what? Like what is? Like how do you get? How do you not award this movie that has made a lot of money? That has you know it's on the number one list. For so many critics of that year, like what's like, what what does it have to do? What the is hell, it, Academy? Is it like <laughs> like you've awarded Lord of the Rings? Like you clearly don't have a fantasy bias here. Like what's going on? 
And so I was very mad, and then I was, I was just like, all right, I have to like I have to see the lives of others. What's happening? Like, why did this movie win? And I see the lives of others, and I go, oh, that <laughs> is actually, uh, it's not only a great movie. I think it is. Uh, it's at least top ten of the the aughts. I think that movie is absolutely one hundred percent brilliant, and I am fine with it winning best uh, foreign language. I would be I'll fine. With, I'd be I'd be fine with with it getting nominated for best picture itself. It is uh, absolutely absolutely brilliant, and I I just love it. And I don't know why that wasn't nominated for any screenplay awards or anything. Uh, and if, so, if you haven't seen that, listen to the episode to hear more about that. But just know that. Lives of Others is a really, really, really good movie. Amy, have you seen that? I have not, but as you're saying this, I'm now like, clearly I'm going to have to go to Amazon. Oh, oh, yeah, do, do and that. And rent a, it. It's, it's, uh, it's a great, it's about uh, spies in the Cold War and, 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 the, and theater. And it's, it's got, it's got a lot, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of wonderful uh, tension and nuance in it that just makes for a, just a great time at the, uh, at the, at the movies, but, uh, still it's very, it's just, it does seem odd that, you know, I don't think many, nobody could, nobody could name, I don't think really many people could name a best foreign language winner. Certainly the lives of others would not be it. You probably barely name a best foreign language film. Pan's Labyrinth might actually be one of the ones they could. We will take a short break and finally, 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 we'll come back and discuss Pan's Labyrinth. Coming up with this idea for this movie, like how, kicking this idea around your head. Yeah, well, the idea, it, it's, a, it's sort of a sister movie to another movie I made called Devil's Backbone, which was already uh, set in the Civil War in Spain, and it dealt with brutality and innocence. And I think this movie deals with the same two issues, mm -hmm. is what happens to children in war. You know, in this case, it's, uh, it's after the war, but there is repression in mm -hmm. the rebels in the mountains and so forth. So thinking about it, I thought, it would be a movie where you could create a fantasy world that was as, as real and sometimes as scary or as uh, dangerous as the real world. Pan's Labyrinth is the story of a young girl who gives her brother up to the Goblin King, and so she has to go and find him and solve a bunch of mysteries, and there's David... Oh, wait, no, no, sorry. sorry. That's Labyrinth, the brilliant Jim Henson movie starring David Bowie's crotch. Pan's Labyrinth <laughs> is something different. Uh, ooh, I got the I got the wrong notes on this one. What is Pan's Labyrinth about, Amy? <laughs> R.I.P. David Bowie. That movie, side note, is also on the Amy Thomas and Top 100. That's uh, a great movie. It's such a great movie. Ages very well too. In 1944, Spain. The bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. Um, yes, that's short, sweet, to the point. Uh, what, is, what is your familiarity with the young person goes into fantasy world subgenre of literature and media? Are you are you are you very well versed in it? Do you do you like? Are you drawn to it? What 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 do you think? It's not. It's not a genre in books or movies that I'm usually super into. It would have to be something. There would have to be something about it that would make me see it. Um, bringing back to the original Labyrinth, loved that movie, <laughs> but. I never read the Lord of the Rings books, which isn't really about someone going into it. But as far as like fantasy realms and people going on quests, it's not really uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think I read one book, and that was just because it was assigned to me. Right. But I did have a very overactive imagination, and I love fairy tales and those sorts of things. And the people going on quests in the musical into the woods is one of my all-time favorite musicals that one's kind of the one that got me into theater but this this movie is special and unique and for even me who i don't know as much about del toro as you do right. i still loved it i was totally swept into this world and it's so beautiful from again the opening shot until the end right yes um 
so a lot a lot of the when confronted with uh, with a story like this, and you, the literature is is rife with them. I, I just finished a book called The Book of Lost Things, which is about a young boy escapes the horrors of uh, World War II, and his his uh, his stepmother uh, he just you know goes into a fantasy fantasy world where he has to you know he helps he helps out like quasi mythic and you know characters from his own imagination in these books where he has to like stop stop this great evil it's a it's a common it's common trait. great book common trait um so but really uh what it comes down to and um and a lot of these is that do you think amy in pan's labyrinth is what we see on screen with ophelia uh, the main uh, the main girl chatting with the fawn and interacting with all of these fantastical creatures. Is that really happening? No, I don't think so. Really? Why is that? I feel that the girl, it's its the girl, Ophelia, it's, it's established so early on that she's just, very dreamy. Her mother talks about how she reads books all the time. And she is the kind of little girl, kind of like I was, that would always kind of be making the world a magical, beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And I feel one thing that Del Toro did is that he did everything so seamlessly that it didn't seem like, okay, now here we are in the real world. And then now we're all in the fantasy world. Okay, wait, no, now we're in the real world again. It's so woven in. Um, audience, what you don't know is that earlier in the week, I texted our wonderful host, Mr. Buja, because I didn't know how to describe the opening of the movie because there's this pixie dust slash pollen? Pollen, yeah, let's go with that. Dust particles floating all over these woods. And so, and it just makes it seem so magical from the opening. Right. And they're in a car and they're in the woods and the poor mother, I could relate with morning sickness. <laughs> oh, this is, this, so is, this is not morning sickness though. This is, she is, she is too far along to have morning sickness. Oh no, 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 no. See, what our co-hosts might not know is that up until a week before I gave birth to both my children, I was still throwing up in the sink in the morning when oh, I was brushing my teeth. Okay. Some of us get it the entire the entire run. Of the I pregnancy. apologize. I apologize for so, mansplaining pregnancy. I uh, on I behalf was of women everywhere. Mea culpa. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, oh. Carmen been there lady and the daughters are already reading in her book and she goes out and she sees that I want to say praying mantis stick bug it's called a but stick it, bug it, it, it's, it's not really it's not really any kind of bug stick itself bug, but and I love how that stick bug becomes a character in the movie and yeah, at first it just seems friendly. like a little bug but she's the kind of girl that would chase it into the woods and then imagine all of these things and I Again, I can relate to that because I was that kind of a child. If you weren't that kind of a child, I think you would have a much tougher time relating to it. Right. But I was always trying to make things more beautiful. Okay, more well, yeah, of, of, of course, because you know you're. We're trying to understand things. We don't exactly. quite get the world yet, and in this in this case, the world is a very dark and terrible place for her. So, so naturally, she would retreat. So, no, I don't think Del Toro is trying to make us think, oh, well, the adults just don't see it, but it's really happening, which in a fantasy movie could actually be the case. Right. But but I do think it really is just a fantasy for right. her. And there, and, there, and there is one there is one scene. Uh, most of the time we see Ophelia interacting with all of the creatures and the, the fawn in particular, and it's just her. So we only have really her point of view. But towards the end, we uh, see Vidal, her the wicked stepfather, who uh, you know goes through the labyrinth and sees Ophelia talking to nothing, because we get his point of view. He's like, "There's mm -hmm. there's nothing there," which lends credence to either this is in her head or 
adults he just can't see it can't see it yeah it, it, which is a which is a common trope it's never it's never explained one way or the other which allows mm-hmm. some wiggle room uh but the follow-up question is does is the impact of the movie is it heightened or is it lessened with it not being real like is it more impactful because this is in her head or is it less impactful because it's in her head i think it's very impactful but I would say it almost makes the ending more brutal. And I remember talking to a very dear friend of mine after seeing the movie and just thinking, God, what a brutal ending. And he's like, and it's sort of like some of the movies we've talked about in the past with life is beautiful. And uh, last week with sunset Boulevard, where in a very, in the fantasy world, they triumph. And Life is Beautiful, end of the movie, Joshua does get his tank. Right. At the end of um, Sunset Boulevard, she is triumphant. She's making her comeback film. And at the end of this, she's reunited with her kingdom and her family, and she's going to live forever as a princess. Even though we all know... She's dead. Joshua's lost his father. Norma Desmond has gone completely insane. Right. And uh, it's not really spoil spoilers, people. The first shot of the movie is, uh, well, the first shot of like the real part of the movie is Ophelia uh, on the ground bleeding. We're, we're not sure why or, or like, who this is, but it's, you know, that, that's our... Yes, this bleeding. isn't a spoiler. It's, it, it, is, it is not a spoiler. But what is a spoiler... Is at the uh, is at the end. We see uh, Princess Moana. That's her. That's her name. From and she's uh, the princess of the underworld, uh, who went up to the surface and was blinded by the sun and lost all of her memories. And so her father has been waiting for ages for her return. Uh, and Princess, she finally returns to the underworld because I guess the only reason, the only way you can really return to the underworld is if you get shot and killed. Uh, and who is sitting by the king's side? It's her mother. It's uh, it's uh, Carmen. It's Carmen. Carmen. Yeah, it's Carmen. I'm like, oh, I I actually didn't pick up on that before. I'm like, ah, okay. And I see everyone's happy. So, whether or not it is real, Del Toro has said. You know, Del Toro says he dropped hints that uh, what 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 is happening is happening. Uh, it's no less impactful. I think it's. Uh, I think as a younger as a younger person, I I. Like you want the fantasy world to be to be 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 the truth, be the reality. Yes. But as an as an older person, I go I I, I remember I remember this feeling, and it's it's not. But what an imagination this kid this kid has to to make things to to create such a such an escape for her because uh and this is this is a, a theme in Del Toro's work. Man, the dude fucking hates fascists. This takes place. <laughs> this is it's, yes, it's, it's, it's five years after the Civil War. Franco has won. Fascists are everywhere. They're they're rooting out the, the last of the rebels, and it's uh it's a it, uh, Vidal Sergey Lopez, who is Ophelia's stepfather, is this brutal, horrible, horrible like by the book. Call him a lawful evil dude. He's just, yeah, he's sadistic. Oh no, he's not even sadistic. He's just, he's, he's a fat. He's, he's just a fat. He's like a total boots, bootstrapping, you know, sieg hailing fascist. Except, he, except he's, except he's, you know, he's not, he's not a Nazi. He's a Spanish. When we use oh, fascist as an insult, he's the kind of guy that we're talking about. Right. He's the kind. He's the kind. Of, he's the kind of, <laughs> and uh, and watching this now after having seen the shape of the shape of water, you go, wow. The doll and Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, are they would totally be buddies. Like they would like they would call they would call each other up if they if they called to talk to dudes. And I, they don't. <laughs> they they really don't. They and discuss uh, how best to uphold the the, the law because and then you know and there and there nobody's nobody's the bad guy in their in their story. Mm-hmm. I mean, we may be the bad guy in other people's stories, but. You know, Vidal thinks he's doing the right thing. You know, he's just you know, but he's lost touch with his with his humanity. And if uh, Del Toro is is anything, he is 
he is a humanist. He believes in the power of uh, cooperation and not and not in bottom up rule and not top down authoritarian uh, authoritarianism and it, self sacrifice. Ophelia, even if you took the magical elements of the movie, which are why the movie is so wonderful, Ophelia is a hero. Yeah, I mean she she's brave and she has all of these amazing amazing qualities saving her brother how much she cares for her mother what she's willing to go through to try to save her mother and whether that's quote-unquote real or fantasy it doesn't matter it just tells you about the courage and spirit of this child and talk about another amazing juvenile performance oh yeah oh yeah she's she's uh ivana baccaro is is wonderful in this as a feeling she has she has she has so much to do she has to get down and dirty and like the the scene with the toad which is so oh. dis- so disgusting and, and it's gross so and good, you, it's so great because that it shows you the level of detail that del toro puts into it it's just you can feel it you can you can like almost smell the the refuse and all the oh when he junk coughs up that big glob of yeah, and the, yeah, and the, you get like you you feel like when the beetles were crawling on Ophelia's skin. I was like, oh, I feel that. You it just there's this tactile sense uh, to a Del Toro movie, which makes him perfect for a fantasy film because, especially with a film like Pan's Labyrinth, you need to believe that the fantasy, the 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 other world, is as real as this one, just in uh, just in a different way. And you do. As much as I felt it was separate, it still didn't seem stupid. And I think also he does a good job of really tapping into that psychological horror when she goes into the um, room with the pale man and she's looking at the pictures of the pale man and he's like eating children. I mean, that's like gothic old school fairy tales. Yeah. He He has a great attention to detail. Uh, when it comes to world building, that's what makes him uh, a very special filmmaker, uh, regardless of what his output is. Like for instance, Crimson Peak, I did not care for that movie, but oh, he 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 creates, he paints a picture unlike anyone else, and it's worth it just to go and and see a Del Toro film. You might not like it, but you should really go and see a Del Toro movie. Uh, the you bring up the Pale Man, uh, one of the iconic scenes of the movie it's uh for those you don't remember the pale man is this uh sort of like husk of a of a human being who uh wears his eyes on his hands and he crosses them like that and that's how he sees it's uh yes brilliant uh it's an iconic looking uh creature from the mind of del toro based on uh Quasi based and on that Japanese loose skin. Character. Oh like yeah, the skin's he's, just hanging off of he's him. He's gross, and he he stumbles, and he like he, he, his fingers are long and crooked, and like I don't know how Doug Jones does it, but he, he just has to put his yeah his hands up. Just on the his image eyes. of it of him putting his hands over his face is like damn. Oh, it's 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 great. Uh, that scene always bothered me uh, in when I first saw this movie. She has strict orders from the fawn. Get the key, you know. Get the thing you need. Get out of there. Don't eat any of the food. That that thing on the table is doesn't take kindly to interlopers. Plus, you see a pile of shoes next to him. Where like, oh, yes. like how many other like how many other potential princesses have we met in the past? I'd be very curious about that. And what does Ophelia do? She is free and clear. She's totally. She's got the knife. She's done. What does she do? She eats the grapes. Why does she eat the grapes? Because she is like so many fairy tale characters before her that she thinks she's in the clear. And it's, of course, the most round, perfect, big, delicious grape. She's a little cocky. She is. She is. And as in fairy tales. And that's what I love about it. It's like you can tell how much he loves books. He's just like Ophelia. He loves books and he knows all of the tropes of Greek mythology, Persephone eating. And it's always a few things. It's not like she just dives in and starts eating. It's always six pomegranate seeds in the Greek myth or 
three grapes maybe and that's it and she thinks i'm okay because, because I'm okay. like oh, it's, it's only it's only a little bit what could it's possibly only three, and the little fairies are pulling on her fingers and she looks annoyed and she's like ah, get away from me and you're like oh and and it is it's that downfall which it's just a call back to all great literature right um that hubris yeah, there, there, there's a there's a lot of pride in there. Plus, she also, the the fawn, fawns are you know they are, by their nature, untrustworthy characters. Like that's like that's the whole thing about a fawn. So she, you oh, know, he's just as horrifying. As yeah, the yeah, male. He, yeah. He, he's just as horrifying. But um, the the fawn says don't don't eat the uh, don't eat the stuff, and you know the the fairies are sort of the fawn's little like little messengers, yes. and the, <laughs> but the fairies. Are pointing, you know, earlier in the scene, the fairies point to the wrong door that Ophelia has to open, and so I think Ophelia also has a sense of like, well, why should I listen to you guys? I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in a while, which I think is, it's a minor scene, but I think they should have included something because Ophelia hadn't eaten in a while. To uh, to show that like. He's actually he's also like really hungry. We know that the food food is scarce, but she's also the stepdaughter of the of the captain, so maybe she should be getting some stuff. It's it's a little it's at at first glance it's kind of jarring because it feels like well we have this creature so we need to use him. How do we get that? Oh, let's have her eat a grape. But it does make it does make sense in uh in context of the character of Ophelia. She succeeded wonderfully with the giant toad who had been destroying the fig tree, mm-hmm. and now, so now she thinks I can, I can do this. So she eats the uh, eats the grape. Some of the fairies get their heads bitten off in a most disgusting way. And the sound effects of them shrieking. Oh, it's great! And there's a there's a t- there's a ticking clock or, or, or a ticking hourglass, and she has to. She barely barely escapes with her life. It's another uh, trope, the hourglass. I do, I do you love see it. that in the movie labyrinth and everything. You always there's always a set amount of time. Right, set amount. Well, because there's no greater uh, dramatic device than a literal ticking clock for for a character to ha- to have to be. It gets uh, overused a lot, certainly in like TV mm-hmm. and procedurals. But you know, if you can create if you can create a good like a short amount of time that somebody has to complete a task in it can become very tense because you have okay the door the doors the doors closed you have this child eating monstrosity coming after you and she has to scramble to make it draw her own it, door on the, on and the that on quick the, thinking i love her oh yeah she's oh yeah she's clever that's that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a thing about all the children in these uh, in yes. These fantasy worlds is that they are not. They maybe not aren't the strongest or the quickest, but they're they're clever, and it's the clever ones who who always succeed. It's the clever ones who pass the tests. At the end, Ophelia is you know she brings her 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 son her brother her half brother her half brother to the labyrinth, and in order to get in, the blood of an innocent must be spilled. And the and the fawn's like it just it's just a couple of drops. It's fine. It's fine. You'll you'll become you'll become princess, and all will be right with the world. But even mm-hmm. then, she says no because she doesn't hey, trust him. He's being creepy. He's so creepy. He's so. And then he and then he starts yelling at her. It's like you give up your throne for this this yes. one for this the uh, the son of this man who has done nothing but evil to you. And you go oh, and that speaks to not only uh, Ophelia uh, uh, in that in that sense Ophelia is not being clever or at least not. Consciously being clever, she's just being like, she's the good person. Yep, and she's pure of heart. She's pure of heart, and you have to, and that is why, and she's that's she's the opposite to Vidal, who is lot who is just lost in the uh, the power and the uh, and the amor- the amorality of of his position. What do you think the pale man represents? Going back to him, I feel. That he is, and I really want to go back and study. I feel like he's probably a symbol of some kind of archetype in literature or some kind of mythology. I'm positive that there's some parallel there that I just am not really aware of. Mm-hmm. 
like when you mentioned the fawn, I was like, oh, that's right. Fawns, fawns in literature. You can't always trust them. They're tricksters. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I know that there's something. I just am not literate enough or have the background knowledge to, to understand all that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure there are mythological connotations. He is a, uh, uh, I think there, you can, there's some anti-Catholic bias because you have these, uh, a, a creature like that who sort of does, who has all this, all this plenty before him, but yet feeds on the, uh, feeds on children. I think that you know Del Toro certainly. I do not think he is a he's uh, I think he's a lapsed Catholic, perhaps. See, I wouldn't have picked up on that. It's 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 part. You're so it's, it's smart. Fun. No, it's, I'm like I might be reading, but but certainly if you don't want to get into the, any religious or dogma or iconography, there is uh, he's a pale man, and he is uh, what is that pale? He is a white dude who is eating uh, eating the young. While he has so much, it is a slight commentary, and he, he confirmed this on Twitter a little bit about just sort of uh, the way things are now and how certain folks have maybe, you know, they have too much and yet they still want even more and they would like to destroy people while, uh, you know, while doing it. So, uh, and the pile of shoes is one of those little details. Like oh, you see yeah. that weird, creepy artwork. So you already know he's bad. He eats kids. But when she turns around and it's like a mountain. Oh, yeah. Like and you, doing that really time. is another good detail. And you're like, bravo, Del Toro. Bravo. And she does not defeat the pale man. She just escapes it. Like a lot of some of the time mm -hmm. you'll, you'll have a character who finally, who finally vanquishes that. Uh, that that great evil, but it it remains for the next victim. And though though I hope uh, Princess Moana will see to that during her hundred years hundred years of reign. Uh, while all of this is happening, so we have all this fantastic fantasy stuff, but there's also the real world elements that are uh, really driving the narrative. You have Carmen, who is Ophelia's mother, uh, who is pregnant, who is very pregnant. Uh, very, uh, it's a very, it's a bad pregnancy. It's a bad pregnancy with Ophelia's uh, unborn, uh, unborn sibling. We keep who they always refer to as a boy. They always refer to as a boy. And I but thought, how are they so sure about that? Right. It's a, it's a, to it's really a toss up. But I, I, for some reason, I thought, wait, oh, is, wait, is a girl? Is it gonna be a girl? Because that would, because like a dude like Vidal would be so mad if it's a girl at the end. He's totally one of those old school patriarchal and needed son. Carmen might end up getting beheaded on a trumped up charge if she doesn't give an heir to the throne. Well, it, I mean, it doesn't matter much because Carmen does, I believe she dies in childbirth. Uh, but Vidal like, does not care because it's not he about... He moves Trump. on pretty fast. He's really fast. He's She's just, just literally a vessel for his son. Yeah, and it's uh, and before his son is born, he's oh my my legacy, my legacy, my son, my legacy, my legacy. Around all of this, Vidal's Vidal's an interesting character. Like, is there is he too much? Like, is he like so ridiculous? And you, go, I can't get I can't get into this guy. See, this is where my patient husband and I actually had a lengthy discussion about this because we, I guess we watched it together. And I, of course, was, we have a lot of movies where I don't, sometimes we've seen them, sometimes we haven't, but this time, this, this one we did. And I, of course, was completely captivated, swept away after I saw it. This was such a brilliant film. It's, you know, on my list and love it, love it, love it. He enjoyed it as well. And it wasn't until much, much later when I mentioned that I wanted to watch it again that he said, you know what? I really don't think I liked it as much as you did. And of course I was like, oh, and I'm getting out my lists of arguments and my, and my charts and my graphs to explain to him why this is clearly the greatest movie and why he's a fool to not love it as much as I do. Okay. You can't imagine that, I bet. So he said his big problem with the movie was the character of Vidal and he said he's just way too over the top and he did not like the scene where he 
beats up and basically kills the wrong guy. Right. And it's like, oh, that was the wrong guy. Eh, what you going to do? How about we go grab a beer? He thought that that was just way too over the top. And it for him, it really detracted from his enjoyment of the film. I disagreed with him until the last time that I watched it. And I think for the purposes of the film and keeping it a fairy tale fantasy, he needs to be over the top and he needs to be an archetype. But it did kind of bother me recently when I just watched it a couple days ago. Not so much at that point, but by the end where I thought, how the hell is this guy even still alive? (laughs) He's been stabbed where you think he's going to die when Mercedes, like, you know, pulls a little Bill the Butcher on him when she says, you won't be the first pig I've gutted. I mean, you think that's it. And then you see him and he's bloody, but walking around and and able to stitch up his face, which by the way, if you did not cringe, that was one of those eyes, my fingers over my eyes, like watching it between my eyes. He sews up his face. He drinks alcohol. You see it fall out of the seams of his face and it hurts. You see him do it again. So now he's been stabbed. He's obviously in some kind of pain. He's had drinks. Then Ophelia poisons him and he's still... He's like, it, all it made me think of is when I watched the biography of Rasputin. I'm like, why is he <laughs> dead? Do they need him to like fall through some ice? Because, you know, Rasputin poisoned, shot, all those things still lived. And he's still yeah. walking in there and he still has his faculties, gets a clean shot at the end. So that's when I was like, okay. It's a fairy, and that's when I was like, okay, this has totally gone the fairy tale route, as opposed to any kind of realism. Okay. But that's yeah. just, you know, that's that's just me. I think the character of Vidal works better in The Shape of Water with Strickland, because Del Toro in there gives Strickland, like, a, a life out. Like, I, I don't necessarily like Michael Shannon's character, although I like Michael Shannon, because Michael Shannon's one of the best, but there you give you get enough of him, uh, sort of outside of the job to kind of go. All right, I I understand you. Whereas Vidal, he has he has a few moments that uh, you know there is a few great moments that Del Toro puts in, like with, about the watch and how his his father smashed the watch on the on the battlefield, so his son would always know the. The exact time that he uh, that that his, how a brave man dies, which which I thought was interesting, but but no, he's just he's just a, so a little too much that it becomes distracting. Like you said, he basically he becomes a, like a Frankenstein's monster by the by the end of it. He's up up and walking around, and it's very it's very satisfying when uh, when he finally gets it because oh man, as like as far as uh, as shine-ons for like this, this is this is this is this is how you die kind of lines. I think mm-hmm. saying that your son will not even know your name is one of the best, uh, uh, the best there can be. And begin because you have to build up this hate. You have to be like, I just want you to die. So we'll just stop existing. That it does work in the fairy tale, but it just it feels. So much. It feels like uh, there's just a little too much happening here. He's a he's an absurd, he's uh, almost an absurd absurd villain. Yeah, and and I didn't think that until I just watched it. You know what I mean? Like the first time I watched it, I was just so swept up in the beauty and the magic and the story. But the thing that Mercedes did when she says the line that your son's not even going to know your name is that this isn't a man who fears death. This is a man who wants to die in the battlefield in all of his glory. So the only way really to hurt him is to take away the only thing he cares about, which is the legacy of bravery, quote unquote, bravery that he wants to leave for his son. And they took that away from him. So that's killing him isn't enough. No, that's. That's how to get him, and I thought that that was really powerful. Yeah, that's it's. A, but Michael Sheenan actually seemed like an evil human being. Right. This guy just seems like a monster. Right. 
My, Michael Shannon seemed like a guy who was just very dedicated to his job. This guy was, he was dedicated to his job, and he just, he went further over, he went further over the cliff than Shannon did. Like, Shannon, Shannon had some monstrous tendencies, but you, you kind of understand, kind of, understand, like, what he's doing. Like, he's, sir, he's hunting for this thing, it's a weird creature, like, of course I'm going to, like, treat it as something else, and it's a comment on ra- you know, racism and whatnot. Yeah. Vidal is like Vidal is straight up. He is a, just a abhorrent monstrosity. Like he, he might as well have a mustache and a black cape. Yeah, that might have been a little too much even for Del Toro. Uh, so we didn't. We're gonna touch briefly on uh, Maribel Verdu, who played Mercedes, and uh, Ariadna Gill who played Carmen. Two uh, fantastically uh, well written women. Uh, yes. Which was one thing Del Toro is known for. Uh, people say that dudes can't write women. I object to that and say that Del Toro, is, a lot of a lot, a lot of his main characters, and certainly his most successful movies, are uh, are are women in distress who are, are facing great challenges, usually brought upon by either men or at least the concept of patriarchy and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love I love uh, Mercedes, who is uh, she's a turncoat spy. She's working mm-hmm. for Vidal while her, her brother is, is is in the woods. Uh, she is uh, this is a I this is a uh, an, uh, a performance that I really feel like deserves a best supporting nomination. Oh, completely, completely. How about you? Um, yeah, and there, also you know you know what I like I like the little things that Del Toro does. Like we just see her fold up the knife. Mm-hmm. In her in her apron, and then that's that that comes back. It's a very well rounded, well thought out sc- uh, screenplay that is brought is brought to life. And uh, Mercedes is is uh, great. She's great with the kids. She's great, she's great with the kids. She's you know, she handles she handles herself or handles herself w- wonderfully. Ariadna Gill has the uh, it just seems like a very taxing role to play, basically. You know, in pain the entire time as as the mom. Uh, it's 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 very tough, and and yet she's still beautiful. And you're like, seriously? Yeah, she's like throwing up, and you're like, and yet, and you she's sweaty and clammy. And again, I have been there, so I was like, sister, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, it's and like, then, why do you look so and good? Yet she's still so lovely, and it's like, oh, yeah, I she's hate st- women like that. Yeah. How still, dare you? Yeah, she's still. It's funny when I saw this the first time, I wanted to yell at the mom, be like, "No, it's like all this is real. Like, listen to your daughter." But now, as you know, I'm the parent. I'm like, "All right, yeah, all right. I get why she's not, you know, not believing the kid. You know, she's her Ophelia is lost, lost in a book all the time. You know, her fairy tales. And she made her that dress, and she comes back, and she's like all so nasty and dirty, and not going to believe this story. It's, and she's trying to keep her psychotic husband from right. You know? But at the beginning, when she's like, "No, I can walk. I don't need a wheelchair," and he practically puts a gun to her head. Right. And, like, do this for me, like, oh, okay, like, okay. Yeah, all right, it's sure. Uh, it's, oh, uh, with that awful scene where there's just when she gives birth, and there's just they're bringing out the bloody sheets. It's, yeah, it's. It's tough. That's Del Toro, Del Toro knows how to shock you with uh, body horror and uh, viscera, certainly. But not over the top. No, I mean, I no, it's never horrified, it's... but it's not gratuitous. No, you it's a... you're watching a snuff film. Right. I mean, he does collapse a dude's face in, but yet somehow you still it still feels like you need to see that in order to really appreciate the sadism of Vidal. Mm-hmm. So um, let me come to the end. Ophelia's dead. Baby's baby's safe. Ophelia has. Where has Ophelia gone? Has Ophelia, is there is there a heaven for Ophelia, or is this or is that just her fever dream? No, I think that's her heaven. That's 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 her heaven. Yeah. Yes, she, she's completed the task. She has saved her. She has saved her half brother. She right. saved her half brother, and she is going to live in happiness and her with her mother. Happiness with well, she's always views as a beautiful queen. Oh yeah, she's very queen like. That's, that's what all that's what all mothers are to their. And that's their my daughters. theory, and I'm going to stick to it okay. because the idea of a dead child is a little too much. <laughs> well, she, I mean, she does die. She does. She does die, but you know, she dies for. She dies for something, which and she dies nobly, right? And which brave, is the, which is what I think we all want. 
for ourselves. It's uh, I, I'm sure we will people will debate the uh, the ending. Is it real? Is it not real? I I do like to think it's real because like why the fuck else is there a labyrinth? Like who does, who makes a labyrinth in the middle of the woods in Spain? I it's so it's it's one who of those it? it's it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's one of those weird things. Like when you when she first discovers it, it's it's like she just walk she just takes like two steps off of the uh, off of the path and boom mm-hmm. there's a labyrinth you go what how did we not mention that like somebody should have said and by the way at this cool cabin we're going to there's totally this ancient labyrinth and you should go check it out I'm like you should you should really lead with that next time <laughs> but and the thing is we don't know none of us have ever died so no and uh hopefully we only have to do it once hopefully hopefully and uh so that is Pan's Labyrinth, uh, having not seen the lives of others, uh, how do you how do you feel about this film? Uh, Twelve years later, I still find it very powerful. Even though I did have that little turnaround to my feelings about Vidal, it's still a beautiful movie. I think it could have been nominated for Best Picture. Okay, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Best Picture nominees that year were Babel, Departed, which won Letters from Iwo Jima. Little Miss Sunshine and the Queen. Oh, Little Miss Sunshine! I love that movie. I, yeah, you could you could have, I think you could have taken oh, the Queen out and put this one in. In fact, in fact, you could have taken the Queen out and Letters from Iwo Jima and put Pan's Labyrinth and Children of Men in, and that would have been just an amazing uh, an amazing lineup alongside Little Miss Sunshine and The Departed. Uh, I don't know. I, I would give it to Children of Men in that in that particular case. But Departed is uh, fine. We talk about it. You should go. You go listen to it. Uh, I enjoyed this movie. I don't think I'd love it. There's some Del Toro. He's he's great. He's great. There's something that it feels so like I don't know. I was left with a sense of. Okay, I like I understand what happened was was very was very, was very tragic and. Uh, and sad and, and and beautiful in some ways, yet it still left me a little bit cold. And maybe that's just the years. Maybe that's just how I saw it. But uh, it's a good movie. It's fine. It's it's a good movie, and you should, you should check it out to see to view it alone. Is it's beautiful. I, Everyone, yeah, you definitely should see it. And oh, I also yeah. think, honestly, and I am I am also a Martin Scorsese fangirl, so I was glad that he finally won. We all were. And, however, I could definitely see Del Toro being nominated for Best Director for this movie as well. Oh, yeah. It's interesting and it's unique. And I love movies that are interesting and unique and not like every other movie that you've ever seen. It's not like every other fantasy movie. No, it plays plays with so many many, uh, conventions, uh, fairy tale conventions. And uh, it it certainly brings the the, the fascist Spain... Angle is certainly one that you know we don't normally see because we're English-speaking, uh, you know, Western, you know, Western Europe and America and stuff like that. But uh, I do so. I so I like this movie. I don't think I love it as much as I once did. Could be the, just the cooling, the general cooling I have towards Del, Del Toro. Here. But uh, I, I still got to go with the lives of others. I think the I, I really do think the lives of others is a fantastic and powerful movie and uh that was the, that was the right call it was absolutely the right call at the time uh it still is you should see the lives of others you should see pan's labyrinth you should see so many movies you should just go and watch movies and hopefully they're great and form your own opinions watch this tell us we're wrong write to us at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you Tell us your thoughts on social media at Oscar Watch Pod. I'm sure there will be a lively discussion about this one. I certainly hope so. Amy Thompson, where can folks find you? A Thompson Eleven on Twitter. We will announce next week's movie later. I just have not decided yet. There are so many to choose from. <laughs> but until then, folks, we'll see you on the red carpet.
said. Would you 